Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College online journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, and welcome to the War Room Podcast. I'm Genevieve Lester, the DeSario Chair of Strategic and Theater Intelligence at the U.S. Army War College. Thanks for joining us today. Today's podcast is part of a six-part series on intelligence. The series approaches intelligence from a variety of angles through a series of interviews with some of the field's leading scholars and practitioners. For a broad overview of several of these themes, be sure to check out the introductory podcast in the series, which I recorded with Dr. Jacqueline Witt, the War Room Podcast Editor. In this, the second podcast of the series, Dr. Rose McDermott from Brown University and Paul Meckelson discuss critical thinking and intelligence, a core aspect of intelligence analysis and thus crucial to decision making. Paul Meckelson is a student here at the U.S. Army War College and senior officer at the NGA. Let's turn to their conversation. Hello, I'm Paul Meckelson and welcome to the United States Army War College. Thank you. I'm Rose McDermott. Well, Rose, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. Uh, First, in your book, Intelligence, Success, and Failure, and in your noontime lecture today, you state that a high degree of narcissism is a common characteristic of many leaders, which can serve to block successful learning. At the Army War College, we learn that strategic leaders are to maintain a sense of self-awareness and develop the interpersonal strategic leader competency, which focuses on consensus building, negotiation, and communication. So now the question. Uh, Were you able to identify techniques or heuristics that a strategic leader could utilize in order to maintain awareness of his or her narcissism and other traits that might hinder their ability to learn or to communicate? I think it's very hard for narcissists to know that they're narcissists. And in fact, in clinical psychology, they're the uh, sort of rarest who come into therapy because they don't need that. They don't know that they need help. And so when um, they end up in therapy, it's usually because their marriage is falling apart and their spouse demands it or they land in court and the judge requires it or whatever it happens to be. So I think that the constraints and fixes that are most um, likely to be useful are those that other people implement rather than the narcissist themselves. And in particular, what I mean by that is narcissists really tend to surround themselves with yes men. And at least in the cases that we've looked at, they're almost all men, but they don't have to be. Um, So they really like to be surrounded by sycophants who tell them what they want to hear and who say, yes, whatever you want, and who validate their sense of the world. And so it's very difficult for them to receive any information that they don't already want to know or believe to be true. Um, And so it's this very difficult space where... It's very helpful if they can have advisors who disagree with them and who don't always say yes. But the problem is the tension is that they tend to fire people like that, right, Mm -hmm. or get rid of them and and just put in people who are um, more uh, likely to stroke their egos, for example. Um, And so one thing that might be possible is to actually have a specific devil's advocate role, right, where you know that the person in that role, that's their job. Their job is to say, well, what if it's this other way? Or what if we're wrong? Or what if there is, you know, another uh, approach or contingency or position um, so that it forces some kind of openness beyond the closed cabal that so typically characterizes um, 
the format of narcissistic leadership style. Um, now, the bad part about that, of course, is it places the onus on other people. The problem is, is that if you expect the narcissist to change, especially around their narcissism, it's very unlikely to occur. And so mm -hmm. we can say that that's a laudable goal, but narcissists in general don't tend to think that they're narcissists. They tend to think that um, they are as great as they believe that they are and that if they think that they're great, it's because there's good reason for that. And so it's very difficult for you to uh, prick the narcissistic bubble without it engendering enormous rage on the part of the narcissist. And that's the, that's the tension followers, advisors, friends, spouses, others have to really negotiate in the space of dealing with, with true narcissists. And of course, there's degrees of narcissism, there's different kinds of narcissism, but um, basically that's the fundamental challenge. So, so to sum up what you've said, it, it, it's not an internal tool that we could we could carry. It's it's more input or stimulus from the outside that might alert us narcissists to their uh, to to their condition. I don't think you're really even alerting them of your condition. What you're doing is constraining the effects of their condition, right? So you're trying to uh, sort of. Um, reduce the damage that can be done. You're not going to actually be able to point out to them their condition because then they just get mad at you and fire you and you right. know, do whatever they can to get rid of you. And so it's more about um, uh, reducing the damage, you know, um, than trying to actually make the person aware of their condition or mitigate their condition. I'm not sure most narcissists, if they realize they were narcissists, would want to change. I mean, it's just a fundamental part of their existential identity is their need to believe in their own very high degree of self-esteem. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I think that um, uh, it's not so much about making them aware. It's just the outside people trying to be aware and trying to contain the fallout of it. Okay. Now that's that's very enlightening, and I, I appreciate your thoughts on that. Uh, my next question: uh, I, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm an intelligence officer by trade. A couple of days ago, we had uh, Director Clapper here, who, uh, who who had a quote that said that there are only two states of being: either policy successes or intelligence failures. Uh, as an intelligence officer, I have been told, you know, you told me, but you didn't convince me. Uh, so when we depart from the War College we will most likely be called upon to serve as a strategic advisor or a strategic communicator uh, to senior leaders. And we're more than likely going to hear things like that. So are there intellectual tools that you recommend we carry with us uh, when, we, when we head back out into the, uh, into the army or into the, uh, into the government at large uh, to serve in the, in the roles of strategic advisor, strategic uh, communicator for, for very senior leaders? Yeah, I mean, um, one of the things that's so interesting to me about the the Clapper quote is that um, policy is the success, implying that um, it involves a lot more than intelligence, but the failure rests entirely on intelligence without the policymakers accepting responsibility for the parts that don't come from intelligence. It's funny because it's true. Yeah, and... Um, that's where that's what makes me sad about that quote, right? Is that failure is not just the result of one part of the equation failing. Sometimes it is, but it's often you can give people the right intelligence and they won't act on it or they won't know how to 
you know, act appropriately. Um, and then if they do something that goes beyond that, that's a success, then it's all theirs. It doesn't, you know, reflect back on the larger uh, intelligence community, which often did the backbone, uh, you know, the back the the backbone of the really hard labor. Um, when you talk about communicating, I guess I'd mention a couple of things. I mean, in the historical cases we looked at, a big part of that communication really came out of trust that built up in a relationship over time. So, you know, minor successes, you trust that person's judgment, you trust their evaluation, then you give them maybe a bigger task the next time. And so there's there's relationships that develop over time that uh, allow for uh, uncomfortable information to be communicated in a way that the receiver trusts that it's honest information and not just an attempt to manipulate. So the challenge always, of course, is that um, they, you know, policymakers may be upset that you didn't convince them, but if you try to convince them too much, they may feel like they're being manipulated, right? And so right. how do you how do you walk that line? Um, and you know, the easy answer is to say. There are strategies in social psychology that are used for persuasion. And Robert Cialdini does the best work on this. And he basically identifies six main ways that are very effective forms of communication when you're trying to persuade someone. Uh, one is you rely on authority. And, you know, like I'm the biggest, baddest, best, whatever. The other is liking. You know, the Facebook thing, thumbs up. You know, you like me, I like you. If I tell you I like you, then you're more likely to like me. Um, yes. Another is scarcity, right? Businesses do this all the time. This is your last chance to get this discount. Or, you know, there's only 16 left. And if you don't get one, none of them are going to be left. Um, and so giving a sense of, of time urgency, like if you don't jump on it now, you're not going to get it. Um, consensus, which is that everybody else is doing it, right? Every kid does this their mom, but mom, everybody else is doing it, right? Um, and then there's the um, consistency with prior commitment. So you get people to make a commitment in a direction for a very small thing, and then they're much, much, much more likely to agree to subsequent things that are larger asks if they're consistent with the previous ask. Um, so maintaining Consistency is something that most people value. Not everyone values it, but most people value being consistent in their thoughts and actions and behaviors. And so, you know, um, you say to somebody, gee, you know, can I put this lawn sign out for, you know, this candidate? And, you know, it's for a race you don't really care about. Maybe it's city council, whatever it happens to be. And, you know, their kid plays soccer with your kid. And so you're like, fine. And then someone comes the next day and says, well, gee, would you give $2 to the campaign? You know, I see you have the lawn sign out. Oh, well, sure. Okay, I'll give you $2. You know, and then pretty soon you're volunteering 20 hours a week for the campaign, right? I mean, mm -hmm. these, there's this consistency with these kinds of um, um, asks. Um, and the other, the final one, which is very, very powerful, is reciprocity, right? I do something for you, and then the implicit expectation is that you do something for me. Every time you get a letter in the mail that gives you a nickel or a dime or a quarter is trying to to wedge reciprocity, right? Like, I'm going to send you this letter, and I, I'm going to send you this nickel to prove how important it is to me. No, you're not sending the nickel to prove it's important. You're sending the nickel because you want to inculcate a guilt in me that makes me then give you a dollar or $10 or $20 or whatever it happens to be. And so those are the main ways that, you know, Cialdini, based on a lot of 
uh, field work, working as a used car salesman and a waiter and all kinds of service industries uh, found were the consistent ways you can most effectively and efficiently persuade people around various mechanisms. Um, that said, he also says that it's easiest to persuade people if you persuade them, meaning if people convince themselves before you have to communicate with them, mm -hmm. um, then they're much more likely to be amenable. So finding people who, uh, you know, it's like a, a lawyer finding a sympathetic judge. You want to um, approach people who you know are sympathetic to your position to the fact that they care about the issue that you care about. Maybe it's political ideology, whatever it happens to be. Um, and of course, there's other ways in which you can establish rapport that make it more likely that you would be able to uh, convince somebody. Um, but I think it's also a function of the fact that when policies fail, policymakers like to have someone to blame. And it's easiest to blame people that are uh, hidden from public view makes sense so that's my that's my sense of it well thank you for that <laughs> uh, my next question uh, comes from your book intelligence success and failure you state that historical memory especially of emotional trauma can exert a long shadow over decision making that might lead to an unintended conflict so the question what other things have you been able to identify which can negatively negatively influence our decision making process and are there ways to avoid them? There's a lot of things. Um, I think that one of the really consistent ones, some of the most consistent ones are quite endemic. Um, stress. So, you know, if someone is really stressed out, they don't make the best decisions. And um, stress happens when you have a lot of time urgency, when you have to make a decision right away. It's really important. It's really critical. And so you can't take the time you need to assess every angle or think everything through. That increases your level of stress. Uh, there's an old aphorism that uh, if you want to get something done, give it to a busy person. Uh, how, how does... You know, obviously, a busy person is probably stressed. What you say uh, is very, very logical, makes a lot of sense, but you know, these, these little witticisms also have a kernel of yeah. truth to them. Is there, is there any way uh, to reconcile these two things? Absolutely. Yeah. So there's actually quite a lot of work that looks at the relationship between stress and performance, and it's an inverted U-shaped curve. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have enough stress, you're basically lazy, right? You just don't have enough motivation to do much. Um, and if you have more stress, you increase in your performance up to a peak. But there is a point at which too much stress reduces your performance because you can't pay enough attention to make a good decision. Now, the point at which stress moves from being uh, helpful to being um, counterproductive differs with every individual. And that's one of the places where I think emotional trauma makes a big difference because the moment that you hit the place where it undoes you is sooner if you have a lot of triggers around a particular issue. The mm -hmm. point at which the stress is going to overwhelm your ability to make optimal decision-making is just going to happen sooner. So there is this kind of inverted relationship between stress and motivation and arousal on the one hand and performance on the other hand. Um, and, you know, there's other things, of course, that interfere with uh, performance bes besides stress. I mean, stress is 
one part of stress is obviously time urgency. The other is when things are really important, right? I mean, lives are at stake or, you know, there's a really, you know, it's after the attack on 9-11 and everybody's really concerned about the next big attack. Right. Um, and so there's a lot of um, importance that's placed on what you do. And again, immediately that can be super, super helpful, right? Because it motivates everybody. It makes them work harder and longer hours and all that kind of stuff. But if you keep that up for too long, too many years, you basically just wear people out. And there is a kind of burnout. There's an exhaustion. And then performance starts to decline. Um, and so uh, those things help. Um, I mean, those things can become problematic. Um, there's, you know, the, the research in psychology, especially work done with teams in, say, medical surgery, where it's life or death circumstances, heart surgery, brain surgery, stuff like that, also identifies other characteristics that can get in the way. Uh, one is interpersonal fear. So when you're afraid of your boss, mm -hmm. uh, maybe you're afraid of another one of your co coworkers. It doesn't have to be physical fear, like you think they're going to beat you up, but you think they're going to humiliate you or take advantage of you or make fun of you or steal your work. I mean, it can be along any kind of dimension. That really undermines performance. Um, you know, uh, groupthink where everybody agrees on the same thing um, and doesn't, uh, won't sanction. This is, again, the problem with the narcissist, right? Like everybody agrees to the same thing and they know that if they disagree with the group, the group will socially ostracize them and they don't want to be socially ostracized from the group because the group is their whole social world and their whole social network, perhaps. Um, and so they will, they would rather go along to get along and make sure they keep their friendships than uh present information or arguments that run counter to what the group actually wants. Um, there's also um, situations where the leadership is very um, high dominance and they um, really threaten the individual workers. So individual workers feel like if they don't do the right thing by the team, they'll get fired or whatever. Mm -hmm. That can be particularly problematic. And so things you can do to build up trust within a team um, can make a big difference. And, you know, there's a few other characteristics, but in general, those are the ones that, um, at least in the research, seem to be particularly um, problematic for uh, producing effective decision making. Are there, you talked about building trust within a team. Have you come across any uh, studies or any uh, techniques that, that seem to work better than others or seem to be more effective? Or is, it, or is it just based on the individual itself? No, there do seem to be some strategies. Some of them are things like instituting procedures that encourage workers to speak their mind without fear of retribution, right? So sessions where everybody gets to say, I don't think this idea is really working out that well, and that there's permission that allows that. Um, the other are things where you actually, I mean, it sounds silly and stupid, although Congress used to do it, they don't do it anymore, is to have social outings that are unrelated to work where you build rapport among team members, right? So you all go to soccer games together or you all go, you know, to plays together or whatever it is that the group wants to do. And some of these trust building exercises have now been instantiated into these, you know, groups that teach team building and stuff. And it can be very hokey. It doesn't need to be that hokey, right? It, and I think those hokey things are super stupid, but lots of people like them. Um, you know, outward bound or whatever, not that outward bound's bad, but, um, you know, that you have these group activities together and it doesn't need to be 
around a particular content. You just want to have social experiences where people have positive interactions. Food helps because um, it really reduces stress. Oh, yeah. Um, and um, people have positive interactions with each other um, that don't involve the work product. Um, and there's also ways you can structure certain parts of the, the business environment so that, again, people feel like they can say what they think without being afraid of being fired or, you know, having other consequences for their professional life as a result of telling the truth. Okay. Um, I, I, you, I'd like to talk to you about a TED Talk you did a couple of years ago. Uh, in, in, in that TED Talk, you, uh, you highlighted findings in your book, Evolution, Biology, and Politics. It was actually a fascinating TED Talk. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, you, you stated that people, I'm, I'm kind of distilling a 15-minute talk down to one sentence here, but you stated that people with uh, differing political outlooks disagreed on external stimuli. I think I'm characterizing that properly. Now, uh, could, could these differences on, on how people view the world also factor into intelligence failures that lead to things like surprise attacks? Or am I totally off base? No, I mean, it, it figures into every aspect of how we see the world, right? So um, one of the things that's really interesting is that when you look at political ideology, it's really a top-down process, right? It's something that, that influences really basic cognitive processes like perception and attention and um, visual stimuli, smell, you know, sound. Um, and basically it serves as a kind of orienting mechanism that tells people what to pay attention to and what they don't need to pay attention to. So one of the most well-established of these, for example, is the negativity bias that you see among conservatives. So they're just more attentive to fear mechanism, you know, fear-inducing stimuli. Mm -hmm. So you'll have a stronger, you know, um, reaction to pictures of snakes and spiders and things like that among political conservatives uh, than among political liberals in general. And here I want to be really careful that when I say political conservatives and liberals, I really do not mean Democrats and Republicans in the American sense. I really mean a world spectrum of conservatives from, you know, a fascist perspective to really extreme liberals who are communists, right? Like a world perspective mm -hmm. where Democrats and Republicans in America would largely fall within the middle of that spectrum as moderate political liberals in the Lockean liberal sense um, because they believe in free enterprise, you know, free um uh, private property and, you know, freedom of the press and, you know, so on, things like that. Um, but individual things, uh, private property um, uh, and so on. So the differences that we're talking about are much more broadly construed than that that would necessarily exist within an American context. But you can show that, you know, and again, it's really important to say it's not that liberals are good and conservatives are bad or conservatives are good and liberals are bad, but there's just differences. Right. So if you show them people pictures the, and you use eye tracking technology to see what part of a picture people pay attention to, you can predict what part of a picture people will pay attention to by knowing what their political ideology is, or you can predict their political ideology by looking at by knowing what part of a picture they pay attention to. Mm -hmm. So if you 
have a picture where, say, you know, there's police with guns holding down, you know, a homeless man with a cane, um, you know, the political conservatives tend to look at the gun and the badge and liberals tend to look at the cane and the, you know, uh, eyes of the people that are involved. There's just really, really different tendencies in general, right? These aren't every single person. There's huge variance. But um, it's not just in what you look at, but it's also in the kinds of things that people pay attention to. Um, and importantly, it has behavioral consequences. So you can show, for example, the kinds of sexual behavior that liberals and conservatives engage in is quite different. Um, and so there's behavioral manifestations of all these kinds of characteristics as well. Um, and so when you think about it being a top-down cognitive process that directs attention, perception, physiology, um, behavior, thoughts, feelings, all those kinds of things, it means that it's going to influence the way that you interpret and process information. Information about intelligence and information about the world in general. And so one would expect that it's possible that the kinds of biases that liberals and conservatives fall prey to may differ in systematic and predictable ways about which I would say we don't know enough. Um, mm -hmm. And it's useful to know so that that is the kind of thing where you can self-correct. You know, you can say to somebody, you have this tendency, make sure that when you get stimuli that looks like it's it might be a threat or might make you afraid that you double check yourself because you know you're more likely to see that than someone else may be. Or, gee, you know, here's this thing that looks like it's a lot more affiliation and peace and love. Maybe check and maybe there's something threatening in there. Maybe that actually is, you know, a dangerous group. Like that you can help people self-identify the places where they need to double check themselves and other places where they don't need to double check themselves. And I'd say we need to know a lot more about um, the ways in which they differ in order to help them self-correct around those kinds of things. Well, would it would it make sense then to, you know, we, we talked in class earlier about, you know, you, well, you talked a little bit earlier about, uh, you know, the types of uh, the types of uh, people that you'd want to hire as, right. as, as intelligence right. officers. So in, in, in the essence of, I guess, diversity of thought, would it be a good thing to to actively seek out people who have who, who would look at the same picture differently. Absolutely. I think that's critical because that diversity is exactly how you find out what you're not paying attention to that could, in, in fact, be the biggest threat, right, or the biggest problem. Um, and so having fuller coverage of all possibilities is really useful to get a comprehensive picture of the world. And restricting yourself to one side of the equation or the other is uh, unnecessarily and counterproductively restrictive, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, and it's not just on political ideology. There's all kinds of ways in which um, recruiting people who differ on extroversion or openness or you know any of the other big personality traits is very valuable because they may see things that other people don't notice or don't pay attention to. Um, and so recruiting people who have diversity, I think the one exception to that is really on openness, where it's better, at least in terms of intelligence, to have people who are more open to new information rather than those who are very close-minded about making up their mind really quickly and based on very little information and then being unwilling to change their mind in the way 
in the wake of new information. Oh. Um, in other ways, it may be better to have a diversity, but in openness, you'd want, you know, um, some diversity. I mean, you'd want some um, greater percentage of people who actually are more willing to engage with more information so that you don't make premature conclusions um, that may in fact be wrong. Right. But thank you very much for your time. Thank uh, you. I, it was very nice meeting you, and I, I wish you safe travels home. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's been great to be here. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.